for the construction industry. So actually being able to create a smart contract around a build. You have a smart contract and a lot of the, the builders and then the contractors and the subcontractors, they're all borrowing against this future asset in order to be able to deliver the product. And there's a lot of like milestone money placed, not only from banks and other financial institutions, but also for the contractors and the builders themselves, money gets exchanged at certain pieces of completion. And there's a lot of risk in that industry at the moment around, uh, is it going to be completed? Is it going to be done to the level that we expected in the time that we expected? And then ultimately, are you going to have the money to pay me at the milestone as agreed? And so what these smart contracts allowed everybody to do is have full transparent access to all of those milestones. Welcome to episode eight of the Chief Medichicks podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Scriven. I'm the founder of Chief Medichicks, a business I launched in late 2022 after a long career as an executive in business, marketing and branding, and most recently as the CEO of Zenith Media. Chief Medichicks is a community and a movement designed to level the playing field for women in business, leadership and technology. Our mission is to unlock and unleash the power of women by upskilling them in Web3 and AI technologies through education and training and providing them with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive in the digital age. So whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or a seasoned business owner, Chief Medichicks offers a wealth of resources and inspiration to help you develop and scale your business initiatives and leadership skills. And this podcast aims to bring inspiration and insight to our listeners as we delve into the stories and journeys of female founders, entrepreneurs, and leaders. We will share their highs and lows, trials and tribulations, key learnings and pivotal moments. To get us underway today, I'm going to be interviewing Carolyn Breeze. Carolyn is the Chief Executive Officer of Scalare Partners, and she's built an amazing and successful career in telecommunications and digital payments. Carolyn is a Web3 enthusiast and sees the potential of Web3 technology for fast, reliable, transparent and secure transactions. She loves being involved in the tech startup space and supporting founders. Carolyn is well-versed in CBDCs or central bank digital currencies and is concerned by our soft power approach in Australia. She's disappointed by the slow pace of adoption and the development of effective Web3 use cases in Australia. This interview covers a number of important topics, including the potential and application of Web3 technology, creating distinction between cryptocurrencies and Web3 technology, the importance of regulation in the Web3 space and why we need it, and how value transactions on the ledger remove the potential for fraud. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode with Carolyn Breeze of Scalare Partners. Hello and welcome to the Chief Metachicks podcast. And today I have with me Carolyn Breeze. Carolyn, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honour. Great to have you on the podcast. So to kick us off today, um, you have had the most amazing career. Um, I'm very familiar with what your journey has been, but I'd love to just go back. When you were little, when you were a little girl, what did you always dream of doing or being? Oh my goodness, what a question. So <laughs> I went to see the careers advisor at school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I wasn't even very purposeful about the subjects that I chose, if I'm honest. I just chose things that I enjoyed doing and didn't really think about the outcome or the purpose behind them. Very different to my 15-year-old daughter who today was very clear going into year 11 what she wants to do and why. 
And I went to see the careers advisor and the, the advice I was given is that I should put myself in for ch- uh, to be a childcare worker, to go and do some work experience, <laughs> which is hilarious. Awesome. How inspiring. <laughs> it was. It was so inspiring. So I, I did my work experience in a childcare centre and worked out after a couple of days that I definitely wasn't made for that. Like I love children. I also love giving them back. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really interesting that that's the advice that I was given, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really know. And in fact, I didn't even know if I wanted to go to university at that age. And I, I didn't know any of those things. I, I dabbled in music a lot. I, I was, um, a singer and I loved, you know, getting out and working. And I, my first job was at Suzanne's, um, <laughs> helping, I loved helping people trying on clothes and I got a lot of satisfaction out of balancing the till at night. That was probably a sign I should have picked up very early on. Love it. Uh, yeah, I had, I had absolutely no clue, none. Amazing. Okay, so you've gone from no clue to um, a bit of work experience in childcare and that's not for you. So take us on the journey of, you know, where did you go out of school? Did you go to uni? What did you study? And how has been, how's that path been to where you are today? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting path that not knowing what to do. I think my my career started a lot by chance and um, I moved out of home quite early and I was working in retail and I had a couple of different jobs to get me through high school and and the years that followed and um, I was very comfortable in the retail space and I really didn't have a a lot of ambition my only ambition really was that I really liked making and spending money is kind of how everything started Uh, and I remember um, I did want to go into uni and a boyfriend I had at the time went for a job interview to work in a mobile phone shop and I went along with him and every time he got asked a question, he'd pause and I'd go, well, and I'd answer on his behalf. And at the end of the interview, they offered me the job instead of him. So I ended up I ended up working before, this is before I even did my um, HSC, I was working in mobile phones. And when I left, I started in that full time in Wollongong where I grew up um, and then went back into uni. So I went through the TAFE route into university and um for one of my final subjects, I was in marketing and business, I pulled together a business plan for expanding a business that you might be familiar with being from Melbourne, which was a company called Crazy John's. Very and, familiar. Uh, yes, yeah. So at the time, for those who don't know, Crazy John's was probably the largest and most successful mobile phone dealer in the country and they were attached to Telstra. That was the network that they sold on behalf of and they had um, hundreds of retail stores all over the country, a really well-known brand and enterprise division. Um, and so I built out a business plan to basically extend his business into more regional areas and kind of follow the Telstra countrywide path. And um, I flew to Melbourne a few times to try and meet John. I could never get a meeting. Um, every time I called, he was too busy. So I just started kind of flying down and stalking him and going to City Road and sitting in his office and uh, I wasn't successful and I remember the very last time I was going to Melbourne I'd kind of spent all my savings trying to get this job Um, and you know this will give you a sign of my age but my proposal was in a folder with a floppy disk and (laughs) I flew to Melbourne and got off the plane I was lining up for a taxi and a limo pulled up and said where are you going I said City Road Melbourne 
and he said, I'd jump in and I, I sat in the front of the limo and um, and he said, oh, what are you down for? And I said, well, I told him the story. This is my very last attempt to try and get in front of John Ilhan or someone in that business to talk about uh, this business plan that I've created. And he said, you won't believe this, but I'm John's driver. And I've that just is insane. Dropped, yeah, I've just dropped him off at the airport like he's gone. He's <laughs> flying out of the country. Uh, so I said, well, this was my last attempt. And I said, if, can I leave the business plan with you? Can you give it to him? And he said, no, no, no. Like I would, I would never. I would, we don't talk shop in the car. Like I wouldn't ask him for anything. And I said, what if we just leave it in there? And if he happens to pick it up and I get contacted, I'll shout you and your wife to Flower Drum, which was the most expensive restaurant I could think of at the time. <laughs> You are hilarious. Talk about yeah. ambition. And within a week I got a call um, from someone in John's team and within a week of that I was hired and within a week of that I was down in Victoria at a at an off-site on a golf course, you know, having a chat to John Ilhan. So the kind wow. of the rest kind of went from, from there. That is such an incredible journey. Oh, my God. I just love the tenacity and the drive and the conviction. It doesn't surprise me at all knowing you as I do. Um, so, okay, so from there when you're now the CEO of um, VC firm Scolaro Partners, how, how did you sort of plug the gap in between that and is this something that you've always been inspired to go after? Yeah, so I stayed in telco for a few years and worked my way up. So I did the usual trajectory of salesperson to team leader to sales leader and moved up into enterprise and into global accounts, that kind of very familiar path most commercial people would be familiar with. Uh, and telco was kind of getting to that inflection point in the market where it was starting to become a commodity. Data sims had already been released, machine-to-machine -machine sim cards were out, um, and, you know, we'd done all these bundling plans, so they weren't individual plans anymore and consolidated to one device. No longer did you have a BlackBerry and a phone, and basically the money was leaving that market, uh, became a much smaller market. And um, a colleague of mine had moved over to work at PayPal and PayPal and eBay at the time were one company in Australia and um, eBay were um, basically hiring their first ever group of sales people, account managers and channel partnerships to try and advocate it, the eBay marketplace as a place for new inventory, for relevant inventory, not just, you know, secondhand goods. Uh, so I joined the eBay team. So I went from, you know, working in telco to jumping into like Silicon Valley tech in the early 2000s, um, you know, talking to Australian retailers about using eBay as a, an omni-channel go-to-market proposition to attract new customers. And that was a lot of fun because um, I learned a lot about tech. eBay was a great place to grow up in that they let you change roles and experience different things. You've got a lot of exposure, particularly in the Australian business. Where there was less than 100 people so you got exposure to all these other different business units and parts of the business and you know one day I'd be sitting in a boardroom pitching to someone like the good guys about selling inventory on eBay and the next day I'd be sitting in a garage on a crate having a cup of tea with a man that sold fish like hooks you know and it, I love that it yeah I just love that it leveled the playing field that they all had access to the same customers they all had the same opportunity for growth and global expansion which basically eBay enabled. And that's when I really I realised that what I really enjoyed was democratising technology and allowing mm. people to access new markets and customers that they normally wouldn't be able to without that tech. Uh, and then PayPal and eBay um, separated and PayPal brought a company called Braintree. Braintree had a very small business in Australia, but the numbers were huge. So small by team, 
huge by numbers and they did credit card acquiring. Um, PayPal had acquired them to extend, I guess, their checkout from just being the yellow button to being able to do all the processing for Visa and MasterCard and Amex and so on. And again, I loved that it it allowed small retailers to access the same technology and smarts that Braintree had built for Airbnb and Uber. They helped build the Uber checkout flow. So again, you could be a small business and you could create this really amazing seamless checkout experience. Um, so that was my first step into payments. I was there for a few years and then Braintree ended up getting moved into PayPal and that team got dispersed throughout that business and became a really large acquisition channel for PayPal, particularly in Australia. Um, and that was my, I, I guess I got hooked on payments then. Um, mm. I really liked the startup nature of Braintree and I realised when we moved into PayPal um, that I I didn't really like that corporate feel anymore. I really liked that startup kind of run um, feel that Braintree had and that eBay had when I had first started. Um, and then there was an opportunity to bring a brand to Australia. It was a, a UK-based scale-up called Go Cardless yeah. um, with a really impressive founder, Hiroki, and they were basically democratising bank debit payments. Yeah. So this way of collecting money on invoice that was usually... Um, held for large enterprise like utility companies, they had made it accessible for small businesses like your window cleaner and your local doctor or whatever to be able to collect payments in the same safe, secure way. Um, so we launched that brand into Australia and New Zealand. I was there for a few years and built that team up. That was a fantastic experience uh, working for a UK-based company and we did some wonderful partnerships. Zero was a really good example for that yeah. one cardless partner globally um, for invoices um, and then I realized I really like scaling up and I've probably missed a bit of this story throughout all this period I was meeting a lot of fantastic tech innovators in the market because I was always working for a company that was trying to move something forward and innovate and break something and democratize it so there was all these young tech companies with great plugins and way to load your inventory onto eBay or ways to make that payment plug-in easier for that retailer or whatever. So I'd started to mentor, give back, free board advisory roles and then started to invest personally myself in a lot of these businesses. Um, so by the time I left Go Cardless and went to Zepto, um, I had a few investments. I, I was giving back to the startup community. Zepto was an Australian fintech um, who was using real-time payments and going global. So I, the last eight years or so I'd been working for international companies expanding into Australia and now I got the opportunity to help grow something that was growing, you know, the, going to expand outside of Australia. That was a lot of fun. Um, they were based in Byron Bay, great product, great team. I had a really good time there. Um, and then unfortunately I was victim, as a lot of people were, to the startup scene in Australia towards the end of COVID or mid-COVID where there was a lot of redundancies and cost-cutting and you know, firms approach that in different ways and um, some of it is, you know, take the cream off the top, others is, you know, keep the top and let the bottom go or, you know, there's all different ways you can you can cut and slice it. Um, but I was let go through that time and I had been working with Scolare already so I'd been um, talking to them about NED roles within their portfolio. Part mm -hmm. of the Scolare model is that when we invest in an organisation, we find a NED within their industry or perfect for their stage of growth and we place that net on their board to help them grow and scale. Um, and so I had been talking to them about working with some of their fintechs 
and I'd right. also got involved with some of their events and community events. So, um, you know, we were having lunch literally. This is how these things happen. We were having lunch in December and right. I told them about my news uh, and that I'd moved on from Zepto and they said, hey, we've, we've got this great opportunity at Scalare. We've proved out we can scale this startup investing in an advisory firm and we're looking at raising another fund and, and, and changing the structure of the company and really growing. Would you consider coming and joining us? So I felt like my two worlds had kind of collided and come together. I got the opportunity to work with startups and invest on behalf of Scalare and get involved with more. So at the moment we've got 26 investments and we invest in about one every month. Um, so the opportunity to be able to give back across a wider range of more diverse tech startups was really appealing to me. And I, I think I was very fortunate in that I feel like the founders of Scalare gave me a gift and kind of went, here's everything you've ever wanted to do and now you can go and, and do it for us. And they're also fantastic mentors. They've been brilliant for me. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky. Amazing. And, you know, you've come through this sort of journey that's taken you into digital payments, which is really kind of put you at the cutting edge of what's happening in the Web3 space. And, mm-hmm. and you know, part of what Chief Metachicks is all about is that education on the opportunities in Web3. And really what we're seeing right now is that digital payments um, space is where it's really coming to light, as well as obviously gaming. Can you talk us through a little bit more um, just how you're seeing that Web3 space and where it's going? Because I know a lot of the conversations I have, people go, I don't even know what Web3 is. And I yeah. think <laughs> making it tangible for people to understand those cross-border transactions and payments and instantaneous and lower FX fees and all of that. Let's, let's let you take the charge yeah. on that one. I think I'd like to start by dissecting Web3 and crypto. Yes. (laughs) Even though it's built on Web3 technology, I think that for people who don't really understand Web3 well or blockchain well, they immediately think of crypto because it was the first kind of real-life use case that they were exposed to. And Mm. they've seen it all in the news and the ups and downs of the crypto market. Um, and at some times it's given Web3 a bit of a dirty name, right? It's been on the nose and at other times it's really popular and I feel like hinged to that. Um, so I'd like to break those two out and, you know, obviously very passionate about payments and at the end of the day, um, Web3 or crypto blockchain technology is just another way to do a value exchange that has this ledger piece around it that makes it fast, reliable and completely secure. And I think that, you know, we I'm disappointed that the market's gone the way it has and it's had some, you know, bad actors in it because I think it's slowed things down globally, uh, which has been detrimental for the market. But I'm a, I'm a big believer and I know it's on its way back, you know, bigger than better than it was before. And then the second part is that there's a lot of technology around Web3 that's being delivered to automate and build other things that I think is if not even more valuable than the actual crypto component itself. So there's technologies out there to allow you to actually track asset management or to, you know, to ledger other types of things or to tokenize ticketing so that we remove the fraud element out of it. And, you know, there's all these fantastic technologies being built. Gaming is is one. Mm. Um, and I think that's another use case. It's gotten a lot of traction and early adoption. But I do see a world um, where blockchain will kind of underpin most of what we do and how we exchange value and how we manage contracts even, which is such a big such a big piece of what we do. There's so many everyday tasks that are filled with either manual error or the potential for fraud that can be completely eliminated 
uh, with blockchain and Web3 technology. Um, and then going back to the payments piece, if you think about the, the simplest way to explain it, I'll explain it how I explain it to my dad, right? So <laughs> if you think about if I wanted to send money to the other side of the world, I've got my bank where the money sits and then it gets loaded into a payment transaction platform like Bex, which does all the bank-to-bank payments. And then it has to go into an FX provider and it gets sent to another bank overseas and then there's a conversion that takes place and there's a cost associated with that and then there's more time on the other side and then maybe another transaction out to the bank account and then there's what mechanics are you using to withdraw the money? Is it cash? Is it to card? Whatever it may be. Um, Whereas what crypto has the ability to do is eliminate all of those steps. So you're basically just ledgering a value transaction. Um, Both parties can see it's completely transparent. It can't be messed with. um, And it removes all of that potential fraud, all the potential for outages and anti-money laundering and proper ownership issues and all of these things. So there is still a lot to be done in that space. Um, You would have seen the news around today with the government um, looking to regulate I think yeah. if we look back three years ago, there would have been a lot of people in the market that thought that could have inhibited growth. But I think after what we've just been through in the last couple of years, I think this is a great step for us to give more, I guess, faith to the market and more framework around regulation to mm. allow these innovators to have like a clear path to show, you know, who the outliers are or the bad actors are, which allows the other ones to thrive. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, you touched on something there that I think is really um, worth picking up on. You talked about the real security in the blockchain and on the ledger, yet the market perception and what's been beefed up in the media is that there's all this fraudulent behaviour and it's not safe. You and I both know that the the transactions in the blockchain are Mm. watertight, totally secure. It's what you do around the security of your wallet and what you're tapping into that makes you at risk of fraudulent behaviour and exposure. And I feel like that's the education piece that consumers and even the media need to be responsible for delivering is just, you know, how to keep yourself safe in that environment and people leaning in and understanding because like you, I believe that this is the way of the future. If you think of transparency, you think of watertight transactions, I looked at it from the media landscape and, you know, the programmatic environment was just fraught with bad actors and bot traffic and you know 10 percent of marketing budgets were going to the marketing so you know i can see the potential for blockchain technology across multiple different things what's your perspective on that from a digital payments point of view but then more broadly into other areas i think that the technologies that I've seen come through in the last few years, like if you think about the trading platforms themselves and a lot of the technology that was built around that, they've ultimately still been built for the early adopters. So yeah. there's still an education leap to get there, right? They're, they're kind of solving the problem of, hey, I know people are already trading in crypto. I know they want to be able to spend their money somewhere. I'm going to make it easy for them to do that. I'm going to build this wallet or I'm going to build a trading platform or I'm going to connect it to a card or whatever it may be. And what it hasn't done, what we haven't done yet as an industry is created a use case that anybody could pick up and use and almost not know that it's been built on blockchain and that's what's, you know, keeping everything secure in the background. Um, You know, I think because it's had such a bad rap recently and it has been unregulated and people kind of dropped tools for a little bit while they wait for it to pick back up, I don't think those use cases have really come about yet. And interestingly, I saw a startup present 
can't even remember where I was, which is really terrible, or their name. I'll have to find it for you so you can throw it into the notes after for everybody. Um, but they have created a, basically a gaming platform out of New Zealand and they use non-fungible tokens in the background. So when you sign up to this game and you create your character, you're actually tokenizing a unique character. And as the character works through the game and builds skills, the skills become inherent to that character and they actually end up holding a lot of value. So they grow through their experience and your gaming experience and ultimately down the track you'll be able to trade them and all sorts of things. Now, when I, you know, if, if I explain that to, to someone, they're like, well, it's, it's a game, like it's still, what is it? Like it's a funny character in the cloud type thing. But if you think about that use case in other parts of our lives, like if you think about being able to use that through the education system or use that through the construction industry or the asset management industry, those use cases are the, the big ones that we need to crack. They're the yeah. ones. But yeah. the early adopters are gaming and selling crypto. And um, so I feel like those use cases need to be kind of brought into the light. I, I was part, very early, I was involved in the discussions around the RBA's CBDC pilot. Yeah. Um, and I saw a lot of the use cases that were put forward and worked with some of those companies. And I was with Zepto at the time and they put a couple forward as well. And one of the best use cases I saw, like there were some obvious ones like international transactions and all that kind of stuff and creating, um, actually there were two use cases I think worth talking about. One was giving someone an identity when they land in Australia as an immigrant, so helping them get set up immediately to kind of access to things and create a profile or an identity so they can start to live and have a bank account and do all of these kinds of things. I thought that was extremely valuable. Um, Mm. And the other one was for the construction industry. So actually being able to create a smart contract around a build. So think about a big, think about the Barangaroo Towers type build, right? You have a smart contract and a lot of the the builders and then the contractors and the subcontractors and the subcontractors, they're all borrowing against this future asset in order to be able to deliver the product. And there's a lot of like milestone money placed, not only from, you know, institutional banks and other finance institutions, but also for the contractors and the builders themselves, money gets exchanged at certain pieces of completion. And there's a lot of risk in that industry at the moment around, uh, is it going to be completed? Is it going to be done to the level that we expected in the time that we expected? And then ultimately, are you going to have the money to pay me at the milestone as agreed. And so what these smart contracts allowed everybody to do is have full transparent access to all of those milestones. It allowed the banks and others to actually lend against it and even put that money aside and for people who would be receiving it to know that it's sitting there in escrow or wherever it is. It was just that idea of that smart contract to kind of implement and take all the friction out of those different, you know, points within the construction evolution and I mean that's the type of use case we should be getting excited about for sure. Yeah and then how do you think it's going to work from a currency point of view? So you you touched on you know central banks creating their digital coins. Do you think the future of this technology needs to be in cryptocurrency or in coins or tokens or is it going to get to a situation you know where where it can be fiat currency or how are we going to make that seamless for for consumers? Yeah, I think there'll always need to be the on-ramp and the off-ramp of fiat. I think there'll always be those use cases. I liken it to kind of, you know, when we talk about being a cashless society now, imagine the shift that it would take to be a fully crypto society. I don't think that, I'd I'd like to think it would happen in my lifetime, but I doubt that very much. (laughs) Um, One of the things that jumps into my mind when I think about um, central banks is 
the, the fact that we haven't started this journey yet is really frightening. So mm. if you think about the way the US dollar affects the Australian dollar and other parts of the market, that soft power around currency and, and strength and asset, we're at risk in Australia of falling back into that with our own digital cryptocurrencies because we're late to the party. Yeah, yeah. So, and the other thing is that when you have um, a CBDC, you have to have assets behind it to hold its value. And we're a small country. And, you know, one of our big neighbours is China and they're way off. They're like, yeah. they're off and running. And so the longer we leave it, the more we're going to be at this play of soft power and always being this kind of underling with our own with our own coin. I would have, you know, I love there are companies out there in the market, uh, I think ANZ and NAB and um, Navadi and others have benched their projects, but there were, there were people coming to market with them and a lot, everyone was like, oh, that's great, it's brilliant that these people are, you know, these companies are kind of forging ahead and going with it. But, yeah, like we're Australia. There's only so much that we've got as an asset to put against that. So we should be combining forces and putting one out. So I was really excited when the RBA did the pilot. Mm-hmm. I saw the results of it. I'll be really honest, I thought they were a bit neither here nor there. I would have liked more detail around what worked, what didn't and why and what the next steps were going to be. There's no real clarity around next steps. Um, One thing that I was upset about as well is that they burnt the tokens. So they're all gone, so the value in them is gone. Um, It cost a lot for those organisations to be part of that pilot and, yes, it was great for them to be involved with the RBA great to have an opportunity and a, and a platform to bring these use cases to life, but it costs them a lot of money. Yeah. Um, there wasn't that a investment's well. gone. That investment's gone. Yeah. That investment's gone. They've been, they've been burnt. So um, I'm disappointed that I didn't see more come from that and I just hope that it hasn't extended the timeline because they feel like they've done something. They've, we've ticked a box. You know, we've done the CBDC pilot uh, we know what use cases are valuable and not. We know what the limitations are and what we're waiting for or whatever. But, like, what's happening? Like, where's the motion? Yeah, I think you're right with the word waiting. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. just waiting, sitting on their hands, waiting. But, you know, there's people and organisations building and creating. And you're so right in, yeah. you know, if we don't move, we'll get left behind. And I, I suppose the other question for me is, you know, are we going to just, are we going to see things like Bitcoin and Ethereum being those central currencies that that drive this space? And, and what are they tethered to? Are we going to be tethered to the, the US digital coin? You know, like. That's it. Then we're going to be back where we are now that's right yeah Yeah, so we've kind of we've kind of got to move and find a new way forward and actually be driving some of this innovation rather than sitting back and and not not even being a fast follower being a very slow one by the feel of it yeah yeah exactly right and the ironic thing in that is like the soft power piece is real and it's happening and we're going I think I feel like we're going to be victim to it again but I but blockchain wasn't designed for that either like Blockchain was designed to be ubiquitous and we're all supposed to be using, you know, the same. It's supposed to remove all of those barriers and friction and make it a fairer, leveler playing field. So Mm. the fact that we even are playing into that and now we've got local regulation, which I feel is needed to move things forward because of where we got to, but at the same time it's also in conflict with the whole purpose and the premise of it, right? So. Yeah, it's interesting and there's a lot of very passionate people out there, way smarter than me, trying to solve this stuff Um, and I feel like it's constantly changing and I know a lot of fantastically smart, intelligent people in this industry that are changing and innovating and actually I think I've introduced you to Ash, one of the startups in our portfolio from Stadio, who's built this amazing 
blockchain technology for ticketing. Mm. But, you know, when you sit down with a ticket master or whoever, the, the concept of blockchain, the, the ledger piece is removed, that kind of fungible token, like we're tokenizing the ticket, we're making it as secure as possible. That bit is so exciting. More from Carolyn in a minute. Recently, I had the pleasure of chatting with Rachel Powell, the Chief Customer Officer of Zero. We spoke about the attributes of successful leadership, learning from failures in order to learn and grow, nurturing your greatest asset, your people, and being agile and staying the course when times get tough. Here's a little snippet from the episode. I think the traditional way of running businesses is to focus on the deficits. So in performance reviews or in development discussions, it's telling people what they need to evolve and grow and develop. If you flip that and you spend 90% of the conversation talking about what is it that you love to do and how do we get you doing more of that? You can listen to that brilliant chat with Rachel by going to chiefmetachicks.com slash podcasts or subscribing to the show. Okay, let's get back to our amazing guest, Carolyn Breeze of Scalare Partners. And it solves so many of their problems, but as soon as you mention that it's Web3 and blockchain, it, they just lose, they just, yeah, it just disappears. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like I'm getting frustrated now. <laughs> so um, back to more Web3. So, you know, we saw the hype cycle with NFTs and, and the wait lists and the buzz and this crazy sort of inflationary activity and, and now the crypto winter and, and a lot of those NFTs have, you know, tanked in value. Many of those projects weren't built on strong foundations and there's been some rug pulls. Where do you think the NFT landscape is at and where do you think it's going to kind of settle and are we going to see NFTs rise and rise or is it going to be more tokens in your view? Yeah, so I think the the NFT thing, again, like I'm going to do what I did when we started the conversation about Web3. I'm going to pull the two things apart. So I think when people think about NFTs, they think about art Yes. Because, again, that was an early adoption use case. So there was artists in the real world that going, this is amazing. Like I can basically create these digitised like pieces of art that cannot be replicated and I can sell them to a wide audience that I couldn't sell to before, right? Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, it's it's a non-fungible token. It can be a ticket. It can be a record of an asset. It can be a smart contract. So I actually have an NFT that is a piece of art but I bought it because it's attached to 10 agave plants in the Whitsundays in, a, in an agave farm. Yeah. And that was my smart contract that says Carolyn owns those 10 agave plants and the produce of them and this is what we're going to do with them. And if she ever wants to sell them or she wants to split that token up and be able to, you know, sell components of that, she can. It's the yeah. smart contract. It just happens to be a picture of an agave plant with a rainbow, <laughs> but it's just a smart contract and, and so I feel like people associate the NFT place with, you know, with these pieces of art and I and, and they've missed what the whole idea of it is, is that it's yeah. just this unique one-off piece that can be anything. Yeah, be- and it doesn't even have to be a unique one-off. It could be, 
You know, I think yeah. there was this real sort of appeal around its unique one-off. But, you know, to your point earlier, we're seeing NFT as tickets. Um, yes. We're seeing NFTs as memberships to communities. Um, yes. You know, if you go back to our conversation earlier where you mentioned Ash, you know, and some of the technology he has created around surfacing utility in the NFT so you can see yes. the true value of what's left and what has or hasn't been used. Yeah. That's really interesting too. So I think... You know, the way I look at it and certainly the way I look at it for Chief Medichicks is, um, you know, it's a doorway into a community and mm. over time it'll be a doorway into brand activations with our community that makes sense. And and for me, I think the future of this space, you know, we've, we've really got to understand that it's no longer going to be for marketers around reach and frequency and, and, you know, a brand to one or a brand to many. It's going to be brands being involved and having relevance with communities in the future, whether that's sporting clubs or whether that's an NFT project or, or whatever those things end up being. I think the days of mass reach and frequency in, in the media landscape as we know it and is not going to be the future. And so for me, this community piece is really interesting and then how brands interact and how brands experiment in a Web3 environment or with communities, be it in real life or in a, a digital capacity, is the really interesting use case for me. So that's what I'm playing with. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I love that. I think that's a fantastic path. Um, and it's an exciting path as well. And we know we're right on the prefaces of it. Mm. Again, it's that early adoption and it's those brands that are stepping into that and adopting early that are attracting a whole new set of yeah. followers and engaged, you know, people with their brand. It's just it's how do you how do we then take it one step further and deliver use cases where people almost don't know if they're using blockchain. I'm kind of yes. waiting for those types of technologies, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know we're using it. It's a really interesting space, actually, because if you look at some of these big luxury brands, they are some of the oldest brands we know about, and they are reinventing themselves and reinventing brand relevance with a youthful audience by what they're doing in the Web3 space. And they're the early adopters. It blows my mind that it's these luxury brands yeah, that are... your old brands. I yeah. know. And you would think that, oh, you, you know, we've got this aging population, you know, are we all going to want to be walking around with, you know, Gucci this and Louis Vuitton that? But actually they're driving relevance with this youth um, this youth audience which is going to continue their brand heritage but rejuvenate it and right. you know there, there are a few brands playing in this space there's not enough big brands playing in the space and I think yeah. the other application is how you bring it to life from a in real life into real life and through e-commerce and yeah. you know there's a few experimenting but quite frankly not enough and it, yeah. you know we're in a really challenging situation in terms of the current economic environment yeah. um, in terms of the media landscape and the digital landscape, how are you going to attract yeah. and retain or firstly attract new customers and then retain them if you're not starting to build that relationship now and it's not just a customer data platform? <laughs> like yeah, it's exactly. just not going to cut it. I wonder if any of those brands, I know they're doing it a lot for like pushing the brand out, engaging a new audience or engaging with their audience in a different way, but I wonder how many of them are actually creating NFTs as almost receipts or contracts for the goods sold. Like you know, if you buy a fifteen thousand dollar bag, wouldn't yeah. it be great if you if it came with that type of guarantee around an NFT? Because you know, because of my 
eBay days. I'm an avid buyer and seller of, you know, goods on eBay. And so if you sell something that's luxe, you've got to prove where you got it from, how much it was and that it's authentic. Yeah. I mean, there's so many applications for NFTs. There's some doing it already, chipping products. Yeah. Yes, oh, and the awesome. smart contract is chipped in the product. Yes, oh, so that, that is already existing, yeah. But yeah. I think the other piece is the delight and surprise. We all know to create loyalty, um, you know, with brands and products, it's a delight and surprise. And I think that's one of the really interesting use cases for NFTs as a loyalty driver. And there are a lot of organisations playing in this space. But how are you replenishing that loyalty? And again, to our conversation before with some of the technology that Ash has created around the utility, how do you drop new utility and, and keep the, you know, it, that creates value in the NFT itself but then more data and analytics and insight for the owner of that brand NFT. So I, I think there's there's so many incredible use cases here and there's, it frustrates me how slow organisations are to the game because it's just yeah. ripe for the picking and you've got to test and learn now so that yeah, you're at the forefront. I agree. I think the other thing is also just prioritising it. from a, Like when you're, when you're putting aside or you're investing in marketing and brand, you know, all, all these companies are looking for return. I think there are short-term yep. and long-term plays and incorporating something like this, it's it's a it's a change, right? It's more a long-term play and, you know, it is attracting early adopters right now. There's a little bit of a transformation for those brands. So I can understand why some of those kind of mid-range or smaller organisations haven't made that investment yet. But, you know, and maybe there's something in that. Maybe there's companies out there like Ash and, and obviously like, joining someone like Chief Medichix to understand more about how you can do that and do that in a in it, it's not as expensive as people expect. No, I think well, it certainly isn't now. I think there was that hype cycle where it went a bit crazy and there was some agencies popping up charging all sorts of crazy prices for things. But I think, you know, that hype cycle settled. So now's the time to sort of get in and, and test and learn. And, you know, I mean, gosh, most marketers know that, you know, you allocate 80% to your, what you need to do and 20% for your innovation budget. And now's the time because yeah. that 80% is not going to work very hard for you right now. If you look at declining traditional media audiences, retirement of third-party tracking cookies, back to spray and pray in a digital environment, the retail media popping up and taking more budget into the last three feet because actually that's where you're getting the attention now. You yes. know, this is the perfect storm of, oh, God, for a marketer yeah. right now, not yeah. to mention media agencies, which I've been involved in running for, you know, the last decade. So yeah. it's a really interesting landscape and now's the time to sort of step in and, and test yeah. and learn and, you yeah. know, find the new way forward. Yeah. I'm yeah. So um, I'm going to sort of flip tack a little bit now um you and I have spoken you're one of the most inspiring amazing women and female leader I have ever met and you know I've seen you up on stage and I've sat at you know tables at events with your staff just so proud of you and yet when I first met you I remember us sharing a story and you were telling me how throughout your career you've suffered from imposter syndrome and that just blew my mind it's like how does a woman as amazing as Carolyn Breeze suffer imposter syndrome and it's so common talk mm. us through that a bit and just yeah. break it down a little bit for other women who may think oh I'm not enough how have you managed that um and how do you how do you manage that ongoing 
Yeah, it's a hard one to manage and I still battle with it today. Like I was just talking to a a good friend of mine who I've known for about 15 years. We used to work together at eBay. We were talking a couple of days ago and and he raised it as an issue he's dealing with at the moment and asked me, you know, how should I think about it and combat it? And I said, God, I still deal with that now. And he was kind of shocked. It's like I always feel like someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and go, you know, you're not as good as you think you are. You're probably not probably not right for this role. Maybe you should have a little step back. Um, and I think a lot of it comes to do with also, and, and, I, and I see this in other people that have imposter syndrome, they are usually ambitious. They are takers. You know, they do take roles because they want to grow and challenge themselves and learn. They don't take the roles that, you know, they, they know Feel they're safe. comfortable in. Yeah, yeah, which is why they're always moving forward. But it means that they're also learning on the go. They're literally building the ship as they fly it a lot of the yeah. time. And when you're doing that, like it's often that you'll turn around and go, shit, am I, am I actually building this ship correctly? Like no one's pulled me up yet to say that that button's in the wrong place. So I think it it, it comes with people who are ambitious and who drive their, they, their career that way and they do seem like they're, they're put together because they're usually, um, if they're like me, they're good at like kind of sharing their ups and downs. They can be like vulnerable people as well, right? Um, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I still suffer that now. And I think I, I ask for feedback a lot. So um, the guys at Scolare will crack up when they hear this, but I recently done my six months and um, I asked them for feedback and, and they're like, oh, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that. And I'm like, I really want some feedback. So they got together and I'm going to get that feedback next week. But I think regardless of what level you're at in your career, for me, I like to get the feedback. I like constructive feedback because I like to improve and grow. Mm. I do take roles where I haven't done it before. I'm not completely comfortable. Maybe I meet 70% or 60% of the job description, you know, and I want to learn. And so the only way I can do that is if I'm given feedback. And I also think the more you progress in your career and the higher you get, or if you're an entrepreneur and you or you're the founder, and so, you know, who's going to give you feedback unless you open yourself up to it? It's not like your staff are going to come in and sit you down and go, hey, Nikki, need to give you some feedback. <laughs> Does, unless you've created an amazing culture, that doesn't really happen organically, right? It's something that yeah. you need to grow and develop. And so it's something that I'm constantly asking for and I ask for that off you know, people I mentor, I ask them for feedback, I ask it off my team, I ask it um, from leaders that I know and other people. Um, and that helps me with the imposter syndrome because they they give you good feedback with the bad feedback, but it gives me something to work on and then that's what I start kind of moving forward with. But, yeah, yeah it, gets, it gets me all the time. It gets me all the time. Um, and I do a lot of speaking, as you know, and I and I still get nervous. Like I love doing it. But I, and I don't get anywhere near as nervous as I did before. And now, and this is kind of, I'm sharing this because this is now how I think about my work as well and my interactions with startups and other organisations in the ecosystem is they, they're not wanting me to fail. No one's wanting you to fail. They're wanting mm. you to succeed. In fact, everything works better in their life as well if, if everything's honky-dory in yeah. yours and in your role. And they want, they want to hear what you've got to say and they want you to share and they're going to listen and you're going to share something that maybe they haven't heard before and that might benefit them in some way. And, and that helps me as well, understanding that they'll have something to share with me that I could learn from and take away and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, um, yeah I, I don't think I know any female or male leaders, male definitely suffer less than females. I, 
haven't quite put my finger on that. Maybe it's because we are a little bit more self-critical, um, maybe because we have had to work a lot harder to get to this mm. point. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, I, I, do, I don't know any of them that don't suffer some level of imposter syndrome for sure. Yeah. And I love that you sort of said, you know, you'll go into roles only sort of feeling competent in 70% of it. I mean, firstly, power to whoever recruited you because, you know, we've all been through those recruitment processes where, oh, you only tick this amount of the boxes. And, you know, you and I have had conversations where often women, unless we tick all all of the boxes, we don't even put our hat in the ring, whereas guys will tick three and go, yep, I'm, I'm the person for the job. Nailing it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how have you filled some of those gaps along the way? Like you talked about sort of learning on the fly and, you know, I know I've sort of done that along my career journey too, interested in how you've sort of identified what those gaps are and then plugged them as you build. Yeah, so I'm very vocal about it when I'm getting to know the company that has the role open. So, um, you know, even when I joined Scolare, I was very open about there were parts of the role that I had not done before. Yeah. and that I would need their guidance and mentorship with and that there would be a learning curve for me. So one is actually being transparent about it. So if they're still making the decision for you to come on board or you're still making the decision to join them, they know there's a learning curve. Mm. You've got the level of self-awareness to understand what it is that you don't know, but also you're excited by the challenge and it's something that you want to learn. Yeah, and great. If the right company and they've got the right mentors and they're like, that's fine. We can teach you that part. It's these other things you've got that we need and it's you and your attitude and whatever else you bring to the table. So there's that, I think, being really honest up front about. So I used to put put it down in different stages of my career. I've said one of the reasons why I'm attracted to this role is because I don't know how to X, Y, Z or I haven't done this part yet. Yep. These things I know I'm really great at and these things I know I can bring to the table, but this is new to me mm-hmm. and I would love the opportunity to do that. And and I've never had anyone negatively look at that kind of commentary and think, oh, well, I'm going to have to. The fact that you've even raised the flag and had the level of self-awareness to know that it's going to be a challenge, Yeah. Um, it also lets you find out really quickly if they're the right supportive environment and that's the right leader or leadership group to help you grow, if those colleagues are going to be supportive. And then whenever I've started a new role and I've set out like a plan for myself for the next six to 12 months of what I want to get out of the the role and what I want to deliver in the role and what I want to learn, I have shared that with my team. Yeah, nice. I have said to my team that are working for me, with me, here is what I want to learn and I really would love it if you keep me accountable. Like here's the goals that I've set for myself. Um, And, you know, and um, if you want to share some with me, I'm happy to help you. Like when I leave this role in two, three, five years' time, I want to be a better ex. And that's why I took the role. So, you know, if you can help me get there. And, again, I've never had anyone negatively look back at that either or say to me, what, don't you know what you're doing? No, of course not because it's authentic, right? It's authentic leadership. You're not pretending to be something that you're not. And I think that's such sage advice because, you know, I think often even in the interview process people are so trying to convince you that they're the right person across everything and there's not that level of vulnerability and I think you create trust in that. So that's such... Such fabulous advice. So let's, you know, that that's great in a workplace. Then you go into the entrepreneurial space and you and I both know, you know, we come across women or people running businesses and, you know, there's this purpose and passion. There's something they want to fix or there's, you know, something that they've seen a gap in the market. But invariably 
they don't have everything that they need to really craft an amazing business. And that's why we're doing what we're doing with Chief Metachicks. But how would you advise new business startups and founders to really plug their gaps, understand their gaps for a start, and then seek out support to plug those gaps to help their businesses grow and scale? Yeah, so I meet a lot of amazing um, startup founders and the best ones are aware of the gaps they're missing. And I've had feedback that they've had unique conversations with me where when I talk to them, when I basically feed back their pitch to me, their financial ask or how they're going to deliver the product and give them feedback, I and actually Scolari do this really well across the board. Like what is it? El- what else do you need from us aside from money? Yeah. Like what are the skills gaps in the business? What are the what are the plans for growth that you want to deliver on where you don't think you have all of the expertise or we're really going to have to dig in deep and give you a hand? Um, and so, you know, one is oh, this comes up so often. I have a lot of amazing female founders that come through and feel like they have to find a technical founder. Like they might have a great vision or idea and they're like, oh, I need to find a CTO co-founder to help me bring this to life and they lack the confidence to think that you don't have to be a technical founder to deliver a tech product you just have the have to have the right vision and people in your team to be able to deliver a tech product like don't give the you know don't give the milk away just yeah you know you can hire a team to help you do this and it doesn't have to be a co-founder it doesn't have to be internal it can be external resources and things like that as well. Um, and then there's another piece of advice I try and give to my founders. I find that particularly as times have been really difficult in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of like, capitals drying up. There's a lot of financial pressure on run rate and, you mm. know, um, what's your burn every month and how are you cost cutting and how are you delivering it for all of those dollars. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is that founders under pressure will often default into the genre they they grew up in. So in the example of me, for example, I had a sales and commercial background. So if you imagine I'm a founder, I've got seven in my team, I'm under huge financial pressure to deliver and I've got marketing and developers and engineers and whatever, it's very easy for me to default and focus on the sales because that's what I know and that's what I'm good at. And I'm constantly challenging the founders in our portfolio to lean into some of the other genres you're not as good at, Mm. really get to know those parts of the business and trust the people that you've put in place to deliver and make sure that you use this experience to become a well-rounded founder. Not every startup makes it, particularly in the very early stage that Scalare get involved in. And, and founders often, nine out of ten times, take huge pay cuts and leave their corporate jobs to become founders and bring the product to life. <laughs> know all about that. Oh, yeah, 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 like you, right? But you've yeah. got skin in the game. It's your baby. It's your product. That's it. Yeah. If for some reason that business doesn't work out in three years, wouldn't you have loved to have left knowing that you know everything it would take to run that business again? Like yeah, that's yeah. the opportunity that those, that those founders have. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a... There's, there's a couple of phases in the founder journey. There's bringing the idea to life and bringing in like-minded people who are purpose-driven around you to deliver it. Then there's making people like me believe in it enough to fund you to get there and yeah. having smart money, like the right strategic investors who are going to help you grow around you. Then there's moving from an IC to a manager. Mm. Not every founder has managed people before. Yeah. Not every founder has hired anyone before. Like yep. So there's a big learning curve. And then you basically become the CEO. It doesn't matter whether there's 770 or 700 people. 
wanting running a well-rounded business with a bunch of different you know skills and capabilities within it is a challenge it's learning Mm -hmm. and um I challenge all of my founders and whoever is is listening to this to use it as an opportunity to grow and get to know those different business functions and learn some new skills. Yeah, that's it. And it's the leadership skills that are key. You could be a great, you could have a great innovative product, but if you can't lead people, you know, that's a skill set that founders need to learn yeah, as well. And sometimes they need to hire someone to help them do that. Yes. Sometimes they need coaching for that. Yep. Um, so, you know, they need if they don't have the self-awareness, you know, we meet founders like that too, then we'll try and give them that insight that maybe, you know, you need a someone to help you raise this capital. Maybe it's not you. Maybe you need someone to help you lead this team. Maybe it's not you. Yeah. Um, we'll get the right people around you. So, you know, we help people identify a lot of those gaps. But it's hard. It's hard when you're a founder and starting out and, and there's that control element as well and it's so precious yep. to you. You've given up so much, right? Yeah. You want to, you want, if it, it, there's that mentality, if I'm not doing it, it's not being done right. And yes. so <laughs> helping them get through that as well. Like you need purpose driven people around you who believe in what you're delivering. Yeah. And so, you know, we know that women founders often only attract about one to 2% of VC funds. How mm. is that changing in this landscape? And, and um, more importantly, what's your advice for female founders to, to help start to change some of those statistics? Yeah, so, well, at an industry level, it's changing quite a bit because there are a lot of funds emerging that are based solely around female founders. Yeah. And I love that. And I've got um, some fantastic friends who run um, female funds. So um, I'm not knocking it. It's definitely a necessary thing. It's just a shame that it's got to that point. Um, I think... At Scolare, for example, we just make sure we're getting a really diverse range of businesses through. And when I joined at the start of the year, they were doing a report kind of looking at the diversity within the portfolio. And we had organically delivered a really amazing diverse portfolio and not just in gender. And um, so now we've put some metrics around it so we can report on it. But the fact that it got there organically means that we were choosing you know, they were fitting the mandate around why we invest in organisations. They were the right founders and they were the right businesses. One thing I have noticed with with um, female founders versus male founders in particular is female founders sometimes have a uh, don't pitch the same way around financials. So right. they'll they're very good at articulating why they're doing what they're doing what they're solving, what happened to them or their partner or their sister that made them realise there was this need in the market for what was happening. Um, whereas men seem to innately be able to come in and talk less about the why and the vision, which I make them go back to, but <laughs> are very good at going and here's the numbers and here's what it's going to look like in six months and here's 12 months and here's why you should give me all of this money. Right? So yeah. Um, there's something in the financial side of it as well. It definitely has to be a balance between why you're doing it, why, why, what it's solving, why now, like why is now the time for it? Yeah. And then if all of those things, if we're bought into all of those things, right, let's look at brass tacks and how this is actually going to work financially. Yeah. Um, nice. There's a lot of, you know, male founders, and I know that's stereotyping, but it's it, I see it a lot. Yeah. come in and they're very focused on the numbers and the scaling and the exit and the strategy for growth and less about 
why they got into doing what they're doing, what it's solving for people, what is the actual purpose. It's so funny that you say that because I see that all the time as well. You know, typically, and again, there's broad, you know, excuse the broad generalizations, but guys go into business to make money. You know, you, you ask the question, why did you go into business? Because I want to make money. I want to be a millionaire. I want to do this. And, you know, women go into business because no one else is doing that. There was a market need. This needs to change. And it's much more purpose and passion. And if you could bring those two things together, how amazing would that be? Because you'd have some really smart financial brains that are going to make money, be purpose-led and drive change for good in the world. <laughs> and then, you know, you could support these passionate, driven, amazing women by putting the right rigour financially around their model so that they know how that they can build, scale, grow, commercialise their business. Yeah, exactly, 100%. Yeah, and I see a lot of those amazing female founders as well. We have some at Scolare who definitely ticked all of those boxes. But yeah, I yeah. do think it's, I do think, yeah, I see, definitely see less of it. So I give a lot of coaching when we do, like, you know, we invest in one startup a month. We have a lot of deal flow, which is what it's called when startups are pitching to you. We also own the Australian Technologies Competition. So we see a lot of organizations and, yeah, I, I, I often give a lot of feedback. I love them to walk, if I'm not going to invest, I love them to walk away having a better pitch than when they met me. Yep. Or a better idea of how to deliver than when they met me. Um, and, and yeah, and I meet some amazing female founders. And the other thing that I think is hilarious now, I just feel like I'm having a little bitch session with you now, but um, <laughs> I often see a lot of female founders who aren't taking any wage for themselves. Yeah. And on the converse, you know, and there's if there's no founder, there's no business. So I always say to them, look, it's okay to get paid something and to have that scale with the business growth. Yeah. And then on the other side, you know, you'll meet a male founder and he's like, oh, I, I earn 300K a year because I left a 300K job. So I need to earn 300K a year. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen few years if you've been wildly successful very quickly. Yeah, well, it's not a great, uh, you know, tax arrangement either when you're running your own <laughs> business when you consider yeah. company tax, tax versus, you know, exactly. PAYG. So, yeah, not so financially smart if you're doing that. Um, one final question for you. What made you want to be a Chief Medichix leader and what are you enjoying the most about it? Oh, I am really passionate about Web3. Um, which is obviously the premise of how this all started. But the thing that attracted me outside of you, the thing that attracted me most to the organisation and the way it works is you're connecting and networking women together to help women grow and thrive. And when you, one of the first times you were talking to me about it, you spoke about all these younger women with great ideas that are very early in their career and don't have a lot of the experience that some of us older chooks have, you know, but we maybe don't have all of the web three smarts. We're not down there, you know, we're not creating this stuff. If you can bring those two mindsets together and get collaboration, I mean, that's a, that's a force. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Chief Medichicks podcast. It's been great to have you as always. Um, and I look forward to future discussions. Yay, thanks for having me. Well, there we have it, our eighth Chief Medichicks podcast episode. Key takeouts are understanding that Web3 is not just cryptocurrency and that there are many benefits associated with transactions on the blockchain, including speed, reliability, transparency, and security. The importance of leaning into Web3 to explore the relevant use cases across different industries, and that as a nation, we can't afford to just wait and accept soft power as we will be left behind. 
We'd also love you to rate the episode and podcast on iTunes or your favorite platform. It really does help with rankings and getting our messages and learnings out to as many people as possible. If you'd like to get your wings on too, then you can join at cheapmetachicks.com. And if you're interested in applying for our Pitch and Grow coaching program with our Chief Metachicks leaders, then please reach out at info at cheapmetachicks.com.